Uh, so we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 16 today, verses 1 to 18. Uh, as Scott said, you can follow along on your own device on the screen behind me, or you can grab a Bible from the back if you prefer. So Luke chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know that I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Nine hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Oh, well, it's a trick question. It's a trick question. So uh, did you guys get the storm out here? Tell you what, we just finished having this lunch on our like balcony, packed up and like bang, like seriously. And then suddenly the street's underwater, it's flooded, and we weren't really ready for it. So, uh, and that's a bit what Jesus is saying uh, in this parable. Are we ready? Are we ready? How well are we ready for the future that's coming? I want to start off reminding some of us who were around and maybe you were affected when this happened. Um, Oscar-winning uh, movie, The Big Short. don't know if you've seen it, The Big Short. It tells the story of Michael Burry and the housing market collapse in America that led to the global financial crisis. Were you impacted, I wonder? We just had a newly arrived uh, missionary couple uh, join us. They'd come back from Africa. They lost over half their life savings. Bang, just gone. But not Michael Burry. In 2005, Michael Burry, he was the manager of Sion Capital, he began to short or place massive bets on the collapse of the US housing market with his clients' money. Now, like a lone trout sort of swimming upstream, all his peers, peers they thought he'd gone crazy. 
And his clients became really, really angry because he was using their money to place the bets. <laughs> but history records, of course, that the US housing market it did collapse in 2007. Not only did Michael Burry predict the exact quarter that had happened, the exact time of the year that it happened, but he returned $5 billion to his investors. He made them a 500% profit on their return. So overnight, his client's anger turned to thankful praise. Now, Michael Burry, see, he was a student of history. He listened well. He assessed the evidence. And he saw the future before anyone else. Like the manager in this parable from Luke 16, I reckon Jesus would have praised Michael Burry for how he listened, but not just how he listened, he had the wise courage to act on the data, to act on the evidence, now in light of the future that he was sure was coming. Now not only did he shore up his own future, but he shored up the future of all of his clients who had invested with him which is a little bit what Jesus is doing with us as he asks people to follow him and to invest in him and his kingdom ideals. And that's what this parable is all about. There's a bit of an outline there, um, which you can take notes or follow. Um, a few minutes on this big parable. I've just called it a big parable because it is a big parable. Jesus tells the parable of the shrewd manager in Luke 16. He's nearly three years into his public ministry. And he's teaching especially his disciples, his followers, about the importance of being good listeners to God's word when it comes to their future after they die. And so verse 1, we read that Jesus told his disciples. So he's speaking to his followers. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, uh, I live down south, so picture this. Um, you've got a massive, large landowner down there in the Southern Vales region. Um, and he's got a manager. And he's looking after all of these little farmers that are subletting different parts of his massive property. Okay, that's the sort of picture here. They're producing all sorts of produce. This Southern Vale's estate owner, he's heard some really serious charges about his manager. He's been wasting his money, verse 1. We don't know exactly what the charges are, but we get the idea, don't we? We read about fraud and this sort of stuff going on all the time, don't we, in the papers and online. We get the idea, verses 2 and 3. So his boss called his manager in, asked him, What's this I hear about you? Give me an account because you cannot be my manager any longer. Now, what do you notice in the parable? There's no response from the manager. There's no excuses to try to justify his behaviour. There's no blaming of others. There's not even any attempt to keep his job. He knows he's guilty. He knows that his boss knows that he's guilty and he's been caught. Rabbit in the headlights. Yep, you got me. The manager says to himself, what will I do now? My boss is taking away my job. Well, rather than leave his future to fate or chance, he decides to use the little time remaining to fight for the future he wants. And here's the thing, because he's really, really clear about the future he doesn't want. And we're told that in the parable, sentence three. He knows he's not strong enough, strong enough to put on a high-vis vest and dig. 
And he's too ashamed to beg. He does not want to end up on the streets. And so he uses the time he has left to make friends for himself, friends for the future that he does want. And so that makes him really focused, really urgent. Now, I don't know when the last time you were really focused, really urgent. You know, don't bug me, don't bug me. I've got to get this done. I've got an exam tomorrow. You know, uh, maybe you've had that experience. (laughs) Um, But we get it, isn't it? He's really focused. So what does he do? He uses the time he has left to make friends for the future that he does want. He calls in each one of his master's debtors one by one. He said to the first one, verses 5 and 6, Well, how much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. Now that's about 3,200 litres of olive oil. Well, he said, Take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. He's just cut the bill in half. That's three years' pay he's just forgiven. Three years' pay. But he's just getting started. One after another, he calls in all these debtors um, that owe his manager, you know, my manager, money. The second, the manager cuts the bill from 100 measures of wheat, that's about 45,000 litres, to 800 measures, which is about 36,000 litres. Now, that's about eight to ten years' salary. He's just gone bang. Debt forgiven. He slashed off the debt. All right, you wake up tomorrow morning. You know, it's 8.45. It's his phone call. It's your bank manager. Hey, um, hey, Barb, you know that $250,000 you owe me? That you owe the bank. Um, if you come in real quick, I'll make it fifty. Yeah, okay. And of course we're going to be there. There's no way we are saying no to that sort of a deal, is it? Of course we're going to be there. Now, there's some things that are clear in Jesus' parable here, and I think some that aren't. But what is clear is that this guy has heard his boss clearly. He knows he's losing his job. He's got very little time remaining to use to shore up the future that he wants and to make sure he doesn't end up where he doesn't want to be. And how does he do it? How does he do it? Well, he's already abused and misused his owner's resources once. He says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to. Abuse and misuse him a second time. <laughs> it's what he does, isn't it? He, he, he misuses his owner's resources a second time in order to save himself and secure his preferred future. There's a shocking twist, isn't it? And the shocking twist is the owner finds out and he likes what he sees. What does he say at the start of sentence eight? The master commended the dishonest manager. Now, what's he praising here exactly? What's Jesus praising here? Well, we we know that he's not praising the man's dishonesty. He's not saying it's okay for Christians to steal and to cheat and fraud and do these sorts of things. See, the rest of verse 8 makes that really clear. He praised a dishonest manager, not because he'd um, been dishonest, but because he'd acted shrewdly. The word is the idea of is courageous wisdom. Courageous wisdom. The master's commending his courageous wisdom to do what he needed to do to preserve for himself in the future that matters. And he's, he's done it presuming on the character of his boss. That's shrewd, says Jesus. That's wise, says Jesus. Well, that brings us to from a big parable to a big point, a big point, verses 8 to 13. He tells us the point, doesn't he, in verses 8 and 9. Did you notice that? 
For the people of this world are more shrewd, wiser in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, says Jesus, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now in the parable here, Jesus is God the Master, come personally to hold the appointed managers of his people to account. These are the same religious leaders who've been grumbling about Jesus, grumbling that there's no way you can be the Messiah. You look at the people you're hanging out with, grumbling that they have to submit to this Jesus if they want to be saved. And we meet these grumblers at the start of chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel. But how have Israel's manager leaders been mismanaging God's resources? Well, you see, God had given them a trust to faithfully live out God's word themselves and to teach God's people to love and obey God's word, verses 10 to 12. You see, outwardly, these guys, these religious leaders, they looked on fire for God. I mean, they looked the part, they dressed the part. Um, But Jesus says, I see you. I see your hypocrisy. I see the dissonance between your public ministry and what's going on in private over here. I see your first loves. And it isn't God, it isn't my word or my people. I mean, sure, you dress and you speak and perform all your religious activities as if you're all in. (laughs) But I can see where your heart really is. I know that you'd rather be somewhere else. Don't know if you've ever felt that, being in church. Thinking, oh, gee, I'd rather be somewhere else. You see, I see how you twist God's word to suit your own ends. I see your heart's first love. That's why Jesus goes on to talk about, you know, not one little odor of the law will will vanish. He goes on to talk about marriage and divorce because these guys had literally changed um, around what God's word had said uh, around marriage and divorce. It's like it's like just it's one one example of many how they were misusing and abusing their position. And especially with God's word. But I'm not here to talk about that. Sentence 13. Sentence 13. I see your heart's first love. And what is it? Well, Jesus looks him in the eye and let me tell you a true truth. Now remember, he's teaching his disciples about how not to be like these religious leaders over here. No one can serve two bosses. You're either going to hate the one and love the other boss or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other boss. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, you're thinking, now, Jesus, I know you say it's impossible, but I think I could be the exception to the rule here. (laughs) Because, I mean, just look at me. You know, um, and it's true, isn't it? We we often think that, you know, we hear things, whether it's at school, at work or whatever, that, you, well, you know, maybe you could be the exception to the rule. Uh, we can both love God and, and money and the material, that we can love God honorably while pursuing pleasure and growing our material wealth like a little secret mistress over here. What does Jesus say? That's no, impossible. You cannot love with your whole heart, God and mammon, the creator and the created. One will always dominate you. One will always champion you. One will always um, grab hold of your affections and have you. 
I had the privilege of being over at St Andrews Hall where CMS missionaries are trained for three months. And uh, one of the books that David Williams gets every missionary to read is this one here. I told me so. Self-deception and the Christian life. I told me so. Um, And who's it for? Well, if you think you have ever deceived yourself, then this book is for you. If you think that you've never deceived yourself about anything, then this book is really, really for you. <laughs> you really got to read it. Um, so Socrates famously asserted that the unexamined life is not worth living. But Greg Ten Elsoff shows us that we make all sorts of little deals with ourselves. We do it every day. Why? In order to sort of stave off self-examination so we can remain happily self-deceived and chase after things that we know we, may, we shouldn't, but we do it anyway. Life offers me a deal. The beliefs I have about myself and others do not need to be true to bring you or me satisfaction. Have you noticed that? We only need to believe them. And it's everywhere in the Bible. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and asks, who can understand it? Well, only God can. Jeremiah 79. The prophet Obadiah identifies a primary motive for why we deceive ourselves. Your proud heart has deceived you. Obadiah 3. And maybe these words are familiar to us. We often uh, uh, get quoted whenever we actually corporately say sorry to God together. The Apostle John uses the language of self-deception to explain our, our sort of flight from repentance. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Let's come back to Luke 16 because, see, these guys are like a rabbit caught in the headlights and their reaction is really revealing as Jesus talks about their love of money. Verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. Okay, everyone put on their best sneer face. Come on, let's try it. You know, come on, let me see you. I want to see your sneer face. Come on. I don't know what a sneer is, but anyway, they sneered at Jesus. They sneered at Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your heart. God knows your heart. Now, I don't know when you, you last were sort of like really scared. Maybe it was yesterday during the storm. <laughs> uh, I don't know what actually really scares you. Um, so these little things called cockroaches uh, cause my wife to jump up on a chair. What, what scares you? I think it's a really scary, sobering thought that God knows my heart better than I know my own heart. That God knows my secret thoughts and my motives, sees them all. That God knows the deceptions in my heart. Now please hear what Jesus is not saying in this parable here. He's not saying give all your money to the church. He's not saying that we can somehow buy our way into God's affection. We all know that you can't buy love and acceptance. Jesus is simply saying what we all know to be true. That the relationships that matter most to us, whether it's the relationship with another human being, relationship with a bank account, relationship with a career, 
The relationships that matter most to us will be the relationships that control us, that control our affections, that control our thoughts. It's what we spend our time thinking and dreaming about. Control our time, control our use of money and who and what we're going to be willing to give and spend our money on. See, Jesus' question of each of us this morning is this. What future are you and I living for at the moment in response to God's profound grace and mercy and forgiveness in Jesus? So just come back and just let's just rethink about this parable for a few minutes. Just like this manager, he used his master's resources to guarantee his future after he'd already mismanaged them from being sacked. It's a little bit like what the Bible teaches. God generously gives each of us life to to live for his glory. But we don't do a very good job of that. And so for a second time around, God sends his son to gift us eternal life, forgiveness, extraordinary undeserved grace. We don't deserve it. But God does this because he's generous. He's full of mercy and grace. Do you know this? Jesus and his death on his cross for the forgiveness of your sin and mine is God's generous gift of inexhaustible grace for any rebel human being to escape certain death, certain judgment before Jesus and a certain um, end in hell. Now we didn't hear the second parable that Jesus talks about the nameless rich man and Lazarus. And it's an absolute shock to the rich man where he ends up. It's a shock to the disciples when he tells the parable, what, this guy? Look at him. See, he has the look that everything's okay with God, but Jesus says, no way. It's unexpected. It's shocking. And that's part of the point here in the chapter. Wise and shrewd is any person who urgently, even this morning, makes the most of God's generous resources of grace and forgiveness. Now, while you're alive, to actually be forgiven, to actually become a follower of Jesus, to shore up your future, even this morning, Walk out of here even this morning, sure, sure, assured that when you die, you will end up being warmly welcomed by Jesus and enjoying life in heaven with him. I think Jesus is saying something a bit more here, though, isn't he, to his Christian followers? Wise and shrewd are Christian followers of Jesus who will be like this manager who will hear and heed Jesus' teaching to be urgently living for the future that matters, to be using all that we are, our gifts of time and talent and money, for his glory, to further his gospel purposes. God's really clear the only reason he's holding off the day of his son's return is so that more people can hear the gospel, turn, believe and be saved. Had the privilege of being at the MCG on a certain grand final day in 2017. Things started really well for the team I was barracking for. By half time, I was ready to go home. 
But the whole point, it was packed. Every seat standing, it was it was just packed. I thought, wow, wow. But it's, it's heaven. There will not be one empty seat. Not even, there's just going to be no room left, full stop. It will be full. Will you be there? So Jesus commands his would-be disciples in verse 9, make friends for yourself by means of whatever unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth of this world, money or possessions, so that when you die and your money and possessions fail you, and they will, (laughs) you might be welcomed into God's eternal dwellings. Here in verse 9, Jesus is talking about heaven and hell. Uh, I should say in, in chapter 16, heaven and hell very concretely and really in your face. And he's talking here about heaven um, in a confronting way so that we may have friends there to receive you into eternal dwellings. Verse 9. When you are welcomed by Jesus into heaven, wouldn't it be wonderful to also be, be greeted by all these people who are just so thankful for you, rejoice over you? Thankful that you cared for, you know, thank you that you cared for me. The way you opened your home to me, and I know it really put you out, you know, when I, but your hospitality, the way you actually rearranged your life to make room for me, and in fact, so many more people like me. Like, I know you could have taken that promotion at work, but you actually took a demotion because you knew that it would mean you being away a lot and you couldn't be around church, and wow, that's, that's why I'm here. Thank you for sending that missionary to that part of the world, to my part of the world, because of them, me and so many of my family and my people, they got to hear about Jesus. Wow. What you did was how God got through to me. I thank you for leaving your family and friends to go and do the harder thing, to go and do life in a distant place in Australia or overseas. To share life and to share Jesus with people who had no one else to do that. When I was up at Roxby uh, with Mavin Indy and the team, I was at the Roxby pub enjoying a good snitty, as you do. And um, I started chatting to B. She was this uh, young, soon-to-be mum across the table. And um, she'd been raised by her dad. Never met her mum. Mum had abandoned her at birth. The father of her baby was already long gone. Anyway, six months previously, she was sort of walking past uh, Roxby Downs Community Church and she heard people in there. She thought, I'll go in there. So she did, randomly. From the, from the get-go, she, she was welcomed warmly. Come in, come in. And she stayed. And, and actually, it was another young mum, Gemma who really reached out to her and sat with her and then said, oh, look, do you know about the new mums group in town? I'll take you along to that. Uh, Gemma already had a couple of young kids of her own. So she did. And she said, oh, look, you, you want to come back to church? Do you want to come back to my place? You know, she did. Oh, hey, look, we meet in the middle of the week where we actually have a look at a bit of the Bible each week and we pray and, and stuff. Do you want to come along? So she starts coming along to their midweek group. Uh, she's married to Lockie or Loki. And um, and so she comes along. That was six months ago. And she's been befriended uh, and she's learning all about 
God's saving love for her and her soon-to-be-born baby. Well, what's Gemma's story? Gemma, as I said, she's married to Loki. Loki immigrated out from South Africa with his dad and mum and uh, been in Australia about 10 years. And um, Woomera and then Roxby. And Gemma said, look, if I had my choice, it wouldn't be Roxby. I really don't like living in Roxby. But here I am. <laughs> my husband works in the mines. Uh, and she's there. But she, she came aware about 18 months earlier that she was starting to feel increasingly anxious about her future. And especially for her kids. You know, to two young kids and another, a third on the way. And anyway, every morning she'd take the kids along to the Roxby Downs hub where mums and kids go to play. Anyway, uh, Beth MacDonald, uh, who married to Glenn, uh, pastor of Roxby Community Church, she never goes into the hub, right? But she, for some reason she had to go in that day. She bumps into Gemma, starts chatting with her, uh, quickly picks up. You know, things aren't going that great for her. She's struggling. And so she says, oh, do you, you guys want to come along to church? She goes home, says to Loki, hey, Loki, we're going to that Roxby Downs Community Church this Sunday. Okay, rightio. Now, Loki hadn't been to church for 10 years. Okay. Anyway, so they rock in. Again, the moment they walk in, welcomed, loved. And she says, actually, by the end of the first Sunday, I was just starting, beginning to feel this weird peace, this sort of, I wasn't as anxious. Um. Anyway, and Glenn and Beth welcomed her as well and took them under the wing and Gemma became a Christian. She came to learn of God's forgiveness and grace for her. She became a Christian. And, and Loki's just loving being back finally in church with his family. He didn't realise he was missing it so much. And here they are running one of the two Bible study groups in town. And see, Loki's used Gemma to reach B and... B's only being reached because Gemma's become a Christian because Glenn and Beth have been sent and supported by Christians and churches like you and I to be there, to be a Christian witness in the town. Now, how did these guys end up there? How did the McDonald's with their five kids, some with medical needs, end up there in Roxby? Well, the previous national director rang Glenn up. He was in a, in a large uh, regional town, things are going great, five little kids, and he says, hey, Glenn, you got a bit of experience with miners, how do you feel about moving to the middle of the desert with your family? Uh, he goes, what? No way. He, he hung up on him. <laughs> he says, no way, no way. Man, I've got five little kids, things are going well here. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, um, Mark rings him back and says, look, Glenn, please, will you consider, will you pray? He says, look, Nah, hangs up again. <laughs> Second time. Anyway, so a bit like Peter here, three, third phone call. We ring, oh, look, just to get you off my back. Seriously? Okay, we'll pray. Looks up the statistical data, talks to a few people from Roxby. And so he finds strangely he's getting convicted, his heart's warming, realising, realising that these 4,500 people who move there to make fast money because they think money's the answer to happiness. Lives are broken. Over a 1,000 of, of the 4,000 people in the town are kids under the age of 11. And they've got no one there to tell them about Jesus. And so before you know it, a few months later, they're moving to Roxby Downs with their five kids, driving seven hours to Adelaide for the specialist appointment. Next year, Zach, who's 15, is going into year 10. They're sending him down to boarding school in Adelaide uh, to go to the Adelaide Math Science School to continue his education. That's just some of the costs that they're counting to be there. But friends, I hope you can appreciate the wise, wise investment that they're making and that people like us are making so they can be there, so people like Gemma and B can learn about Jesus.
That's wise, says Jesus. How wise to forego worldly comforts, to not spend on our money, to gratify our desire or need in order to make friends for eternity who we won't see until we die. Our willingness to go without, delayed gratification, to go without, that the gospel might go further. It's very simple for us this morning. Each of you have your own walk with God to walk out, to work out. But how are you hearing Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? Or are you kidding yourself? What's the finish line you will run towards? What is the future you are most currently investing in and risking it all for? Does it need to be recalibrated in light of Jesus' words here in Luke 16? Now, I'm here this morning to invite you to do a little bit of a Michael Burry. (laughs) You know, here's the future. How are we going organising our life now in light of that future? A Glenn and Beth McDonald to give and invest more in Jesus' kingdom things. To think, okay, Jesus, with your help, I'm happy to be a bit more like that lone trout, swimming upstream against secular culture and everything else. Sure. I trust, because I would love to have a bucket load of friends there in eternity waiting to welcome me. And there'll be people you've never met. But they'll be there to welcome you, promises Jesus. And can I say, with my BCA hat on, that there are 7 million people living in regional, rural and remote Australia, many of whom will be so, so thankful if you were to sign up and to pray and start to give so we can send and support more gospel messengers to go and tell them about Jesus. Or maybe you need to give me a call when you're thinking, hey, John, maybe we could go for a season. Maybe I could go for a season. Use my career, whatever it is, to go for a season to make a difference. For those who are already giving, thank you. For those who'd like to, you've got questions, come and talk to me. But it's best that I leave us this morning with these words from Jesus. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, and it will fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Amen.